I try not to associate horror with Christmas. Um, <laughs> that seems reasonable. Thank you for doing this episode then. We appreciate it. I'm Elizabeth Flux. And I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're reading the short story 20 Pence with Envelope and Seasonal Greeting, or as I like to call it, There's No Time Like the Christmas Present. <laughs> and our guest is writer Penelope Love. Welcome, Penny. Oh, welcome. Welcome, she says to herself. Hello, Bo. <laughs> <laughs> Good, I'm into that. I might start doing that, in fact. It's a good way to start. I like it. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I was so excited when you said, yes, you'd love to come on because you have such a great knowledge and background in this kind of, like, sort of creepy horror and because you, you've written heaps of stuff, including a whole bunch of stuff for, and this is how I know your work, the role-playing game Call of Cthulhu. Uh, that's right. I also happen to be an aficionado of Elizabethan and Victorian ghost stories. And detective stories and ghostly detective stories. So um, I think Pratchett has um, chosen to pay homage to the exactly the right area for me. Yes. And we've we've lucked out by finding exactly the right guest. So thank you again so much. Uh, have you read much Pratchett before? Uh, no, I haven't. I think because, not because I do not want to, but there are many books in this world. And also because my um, favourite souffle author happens to be P.G. Woodhouse. Uh, <laughs> you know, so I think, you know, there's room in, in it, when, when you people are having a hard time and need to forget and relax, you go to your Terry Pratchett and I, and I go to my PG Woodhouse. So, uh, <laughs> but I, I have watched Going Postal and I've read, um, the book he wrote with Neil Gaiman. Good omens. <laughs> That's right. And a few bits, you know, a few short stories and so on. So, uh, I look forward to learning more. Great. I have a question for you, actually. Um, if someone were someone who hadn't read PG Woodhouse, before for example like a hypothetical definitely not me um it's me where would you recommend starting like what's a what's a good launching point uh the code of the worcesters uh which is, features uh, bertie worcester uh, the inimitable jeeves and a gang of characters with names like gussie finknottle and many others whose names momentarily escape me are rampaging around totley towers in search of a silver cow creamer it's hilarious <laughs> I feel like this is going to be one that I read and I think, why haven't I found this earlier? <laughs> yes, absolutely. He's really had a talent for names, Wordhouse. Those, they're, oh, they're so good. <laughs> uh, you can always tell a Wordhouse name, I think, when you hear one. And look, I think what, it's fair to say Wordhouse is definitely one of the many, many influences on Pratchett's own writing. Uh, mm -hmm. I haven't read a lot of Wordhouse, but I've read a little. And yeah, there are little bits in Pratchett that definitely... Uh, evoke that same kind of sense of humour. It's Yeah, it's great. Yeah. But look, we are here to discuss a creepy Christmas tale. If you're not in Australia, we realise it probably seems odd to be doing a Christmas episode halfway through the year. But remember, we're on the other side of the planet. It's winter down here. And as promised in our mini-episode announcing the change in schedule, I'm sure we'll discuss the Australian semi-tradition of Christmas in July later this episode. 
Look, I know what we said, but we didn't actually end up coming back around to this, so have a look at the episode notes. I mean, normally what we do, if this was a book, we'd read the blurb, but there is no blurb. It's a short story. However, there is an introduction that Pratchett himself wrote to go with the short story in the collections it has been put in, uh, once more with footnotes, uh, which was the first collection of his short fiction. And uh, then he's, I think it's the same introductory note um, for this collection that we're reading it in, which is a blink of the screen, which has pretty much not quite all. I don't know if we discussed this on our last short story episode. It has not quite all of his short stories. It doesn't so frustrating. Have, well, it doesn't have like his very first sort of published one from a sci-fi magazine, which I did track down and read. Um, it's is it good? It's it's all right. It's it's fine. It's fine. He was like seventeen or something when he wrote it. I mean, I reckon I probably wouldn't if I was collecting together my life's work of short stories. I probably would have leave a few of them out. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because it's not funny. In fact, uh, Penny, it might be one that you'd be interested in. It is a horror story. I'll look. I'll send you the details of it. There's a, you, you can find the entire magazine that it was printed in, in facsimile, on the internet, which is quite a fun way to read it because you can see how people would have experienced it. Uh, it's a bit like I have a facsimile edition of Sherlock Holmes, which presents everything the way it was published in the Strand magazine, and it's a lot of fun to read that and think, oh, this is how people first encountered these stories ever. So, yeah, it's, I'll, I'll send you that link, and I'll put it in the show notes for you, dear listener, at home. Uh, but let's let's read Pratchett's notes about the story 20 Pence with Envelope and Seasonal Greeting. I remember reading long ago that the vision of a typical English Christmas owed a lot to the fact that, in his boyhood, Charles Dickens lived through seven of the worst Christmases of the 19th century. And so they became, under his influential pen, what Christmas ought to be. As a former journalist, I think that's far too good a story to check. This was written for the magazine Time Out for Christmas 1987. I wanted to write a kind of Victorian horror story in which the covers of a row of Christmas cards come to life. And what better starting point than the jolly mail coach, which is so, so traditional on the really cheap cards. And what would the passengers think of Christmas cards to come? We don't see Snoopy cards much now, but there are plenty that are worse. So this, I think this sets the scene perfectly for this story. So, I was just remembering, right. I think there's a 17-year-old um, Ramsey Campbell who's a horror writer, and I believe one of his first early stories featured the line, the door opened and the aforementioned skeleton rushed into the room. <laughs> uh, I do I do a lot of work with kids writing stories, and they do often like to use phrases they've heard without really knowing what they mean. Um <laughs> Which also is my experience of many university students writing their first few essays. Um, they also have no idea what a lot of the phrases they use mean. Um, I made a substitute teacher suffer quite a lot when she came in one day for an English class. And not on purpose. It's just I'd learned the word glint and I hadn't learned the, wor- the meaning of it. And I was about eight years old. She's like, all right, we're all going to write a short story now. And I'd said glinting a lot, like just in, in dialogue during class. And then I wrote a short story that had it as like, probably every 12th word and just by sheer statistical chance i managed to use it correctly at one point and she gave it like three ticks i remember <laughs> just that one usage of it there was just so many ticks because she must have been so fed up but <laughs> positive reinforcement Liz. <laughs> yeah i've never use. used it in a story since it's fair enough well, well, we, quota is used up we know what pratchett thinks about words that begin with gl 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they are great words, so you did well. Mm-hmm. But this this story, and I, I'd love your perspective on this, Penny, but this story begins in classic Victorian horror fiction style with an excerpt from a newspaper before we get into the rest of the story, which is presented as an excerpt from a journal. And this sort of, am I using this word right, epistolary writing? That's right, yep. Very popular in the genre? It's the kind of thing I've only ever seen written down. It basically means in the form of letters, journals or newspaper articles. And, of course, the classic, which every listener may be uh, aware of, is, is Dracula, which um, starts mm. with diaries and so on. But it was very, very popular form. I think, in, and even Lovecraft then used it a lot too, which I think the story is also paying tribute to, the Lovecraftian worldview. Yeah. In that I think it's a way of distancing any immediacy of the horror by filtering it through a layer of narrators. And it also adds an air of similitude. There you go, I can't even say it. <laughs> no, that's a very difficult word to get right. Yeah, and I, I feel like it's also a good excuse for the author to let us know how scared and creepy we should be feeling because Mm. the writer of the story, like the fictional writer, is expressing their horror or dismay and Mm. it's filtered through their perception, Mm. which, you know, very Lovecraftian thing to do. Like, the you know, you don't know how to... The the author can't describe what they see and Mm. they can't find the words and it's it's an unspeakable thing. And you're like, but what... But you, the, it was written by an author, though. Don't you know any words for this? <laughs> but that's all right. Yes. And it's set in uh, 1843, the story. Mm-hmm. Um, this this first news item is, is from the Bath and Wiltshire Herald, uh, which is... Now, this is where Pratchett lived and grew up in this area in Somerset, uh, near Bath and Wiltshire. Uh, he moved to a place called Broad Chalk much later than when he was writing this. So this is set in his local area, as so many things he wrote were. He really loved that place. But do you think also, like, the sort of supernatural feel of, like, Stonehenge and things features in to to this? Because there is, like, yeah, there's that whole element that drives the story, and I think the setting is a good one. Though, I mean, Stonehenge isn't mentioned, I remember, but, yeah. I think of Wiltshire, I think of Stonehenge. There's also a nice sort of thing where the newspaper clipping kind of sets up, these are the facts of what happened, this is what we know which is that these people disappeared and we went out looking for them and we found just the coachman. We don't know what happened to everyone else. But we have made him as comfortable as the ropes allow in my front room, which is just <laughs> such a deliciously creepy like, line. It just, yeah. Oh, no. The thing that really pegs it for me as the era of story this is evoking is almost the first word after the setting information in the story is singular. In the phrase singular mystery... Does anyone ever use that outside of of this genre and era? No, it is a very Victorian word. (laughs) What would we use now instead of singular? You've got to spend. Yeah, maybe we don't talk like that. It's unspeakable. It it was an era when you had to use formal language, and when if you couldn't use formal language, it was very difficult to um, because you had to in order to be in polite society. (laughs) We'd probably just swear a lot. Yeah, that's remarkable. I mean, you know, because we're not dealing with... Often in these stories, you are dealing with sort of protagonists who are from the upper class. And here we have, you know, a a doctor who is the narrator of the story, but he did not experience the events of the story. He's retelling what the coachman has described to him. So there's Mm. this sort of interesting... It's not just one step removed. It's kind of two steps removed from us. Doctors were middle class in the the Victorian era, though, weren't they? Like, they weren't upper class they were kind of viewed as like so you were working it was still not quite you know it's a little bit looked down on by the even upper classes if i'm remembering that correctly 
he was definitely middle class, but a gentleman, and he would have had, you know, he just said he earned his money, so he wasn't mm. a member of either land-holding gentry, but he was a valued and respectable member of the middle class. Mm. Yeah. So yes. his opinion would matter in this yeah. situation. Well, he has examined the poor coachman and determined that he is out of his wits. So, yes, we have an authority of medical opinion. <laughs> His first line of his journal is very Lovecraft. The mm. world is but a tissue spread over the depths of chaos. And chaos <laughs> spelt with a capital C as well. A little bit more cockyan as well there, actually. Is there... I was trying to think of this because I've read a fair bit of Lovecraft. And the only other author that I've read a lot of fiction who writes in a similar kind of horror style of the period is Conan Doyle. I've read some of his horror stories. And listener, if you're not familiar with this, as well as Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle wrote lots of other things, including some horror stories very much in this style. The main one I remember is The Horror of the Heights, which is about people trying to set a record for flying as high as they can in early aircraft mm-hmm. and encountering strange creatures that live above the clouds in the upper atmosphere. It's great. It's very it's it's kind of ridiculous now to think that anyone bought that. But back then, we didn't know. We didn't know what was going on up there in the upper mm-hmm. atmosphere. Uh, but anyway, I haven't read heaps of this genre. But do you think this is evoking any specific stories or any specific setups that you've seen in other writing? Uh, I think it's very Lovecraft in what he says and does. And um, I, I'm try- I was actually just trying to remember the story where Lovecraft says, he is paraphrasing a Lovecraft quote, which is, you know, yes, it is not meat that humans should probe too far into the universe. And when we do find these things out, we're going to go mad. I think he was, I think what he just thought with the snow was to to get this, it was the snowy mantelpiece on which the cards, the folded other dimensions were. Um, Mm. So I think that's kind of the thing he was going for. It's interesting that it's set in 1843 because that was before the, as it were, the invention of Christmas cards. Um, yes. They had to come a little bit later. So that's why they and, – and I don't know if you've ever Googled Victorian and Edwardian Christmas cards. Some of them are horrific. They are. They were still <laughs> experimenting with many different styles of things like colour and art and uh, they, they, some of them are just horrific. <laughs> you know? I did look up a couple. One of the ones that's really stuck out to me was it seemed to have very little to do with Christmas at all. It was a bunch of frogs marching down the street playing instruments. I'm like, well, that's jolly, but it's not very Christmassy. I mean, I, well, I've never sat down and gone, time to break out the Christmas frogs. Well, when did Santa become more synonymous with Christmas? Not till the 20s and 30s. The, the big, yeah. In order to, for Christmas and Christmas cards to come into being, you first had to invent cheap, reliable post, which was the 1840s. When I was thinking about this, I actually was thinking about the invention of the post box, which was a bloke called Anthony Trollope, well known as a writer, not so well known as the man who galloped over half of England in the 1840s saying, a post box will be there, over there. He was literally going postal. And then you had to invent really the idea of Christmas, which was Prince Albert bringing in the this novel invention, the Christmas tree from Germany. And that appeared in an, an illustrated uh, edition of The Strand. The royal family gathered around this uh, new German novelty, after which everybody, everybody had to go out and chop down a pine tree. And then uh, very much Charles Dickens had to invent the idea of Christmas with the Christmas carol and the jolly mm. family, happy Christmas where we all gather around the hearth and drink sweetened alcoholic beverages. And Dickens himself, sadly, was a man of contradictions, uh, just a, a bundle of nervous energy uh, holding back madness, trying desperately to keep the shape of a a Victorian gentleman. He invented family, he invented Christmas, he probably hated both by the end of his life. He just couldn't couldn't cope. So I think, and I do think the story refers to that in some ways. Um, Hmm. 
Yeah, that's really interesting because we know Pratchett was a huge Dickens fan, huge mm. fan. Um, he wrote one of his um, later books towards the end of his career and the end of his life, sadly, mm. uh, was very much the pastiche of Dickens called Dodger mm. about a character very much like <laughs> the Artful Dodger and, in fact, includes Dickens as one of many historical characters who show up in the book mm-hmm. and is very written in the style of Dickens. Yeah, he clearly expresses a great love for him. And he, the character of Dickens in Dodger is very... How do you describe him, Liz? He's he's very warm and... Yeah, he's lovingly rendered, I think, is how I would... Like, it's... He, there's depth to him. You could, you could shove in a Charles Dickens cameo and everyone would be like, oh, that's, that's cool, but it feels like some thought went into it and there's affection... Like you can trace a path of affection back to the writing. So I think mm. it lovingly rendered is, is my final answer. I'm going to lock that in. <laughs> well, I think maybe uh, Pratchett was trying to do for Dickens what Dickens was trying to do for Christmas on the idea of family. Mm. I would say that this is all a big revelation for me because this is stuff that I didn't know before reading this story and having this discussion because I guess it's just something I hadn't really interrogated. Like, you know, so it's, it's cool to see that. Like, cool literally for some of the characters, but yeah. <laughs> Yes. Let's get into what happens in the story, because as you have alluded to already, Liz, this poor coachman has been made as comfortable as the ropes allow. Uh, he's been tied up because he's... I love the use of the adjective mazed. Um, he's not amazed, he's mazed, which just makes me think of some nerdy role-playing game references, but I won't get into that. Is it about corn? Uh, no. No, it is not. It's a, okay. it's about a, like a labyrinth, but, uh, but that, is, <laughs> that could also work. He doesn't get very far and he gets a couple of paragraphs into these journal notes before there is a quote. And there's several of these sprinkled throughout the story, which we know as the reader is clearly an example of something someone was writing in a Christmas card in the 80s. Whereas for the protagonist of the story and the coachman who's relating his tale to him, it's just weird, meaningless nonsense. Or so they claim. I don't know that it would be that hard for them to pass, but there's this horror in such phrases that they don't understand as the first one, which is actually quite naughty. Like in a previous book that we read recently, someone asked if it was the only explicit sexual reference in Pratchett's work. Um, this first Oh, I read is- that with complete innocence and now I'm seeing it through new eyes. I was like, oh, yes, you know, okay. but <laughs> you read it. Well, listener, it does, it does say, uh, is Father Christmas coming or is he just breathing heavily? Liz, yeah. <laughs> you are an innocent soul. I forget this no, sometimes. I, usually I'd be like, oh, that's filthy. I just, I think I just breathe right by that because I, I was still like thrown by the, the horrors of the previous paragraph. So, yes. yeah. I, I think that might be an affection homage to another very uh, long-standing British tradition, which is the naughty postcard. Um, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> again, dear listener, do look them up on the internet. There's many a, a picture available. <laughs> And a, ju- a pricature. <laughs> that seems that's appropriate. <laughs> oh dear. Um, or indeed, go to any uh, small Australian tourist town where you will find very similar examples. Having grown up in one on the far north coast of New South Wales, I would always see them going into my local newsagent and be a bit like, "What's that about? <laughs> that's a bit risque." I hope that all of my friends are ready this Christmas to receive a whole bunch of filthy message cards with pictures of frogs marking down the street on the front of them because <laughs> it's what's going to happen. Only kind of card I'm going to send now. You've got uh, to remember that the Christmas cards have they had to work out what was a Christmas theme. 
So, you know, mm. that's hence mm. frogs and other weird stuff. But they settle fairly quickly on the snowy coat, as we're going to discover through the story, the, the, the cliches mm. of Christmas, as it were. But, uh, yeah. yeah. And then they proliferated again post-World War uh, or during the World War when the Hallmark Company sort of really took off. But we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get <laughs> to that. Um, but there's, no, he's interrupted as he's writing his notes by a sound outside. And he actually says, I love this, he just narrates it so directly, there is a sound outside. Carol singers, do they not realise the terrible, terrible risk? Um, <laughs> it's so, oh, I, I like that this means that he really has figured out not what's going on really, but he understands that there's a link between Christmas and, and the sort of traditions of Christmas and these horrifying visions of other realities <laughs> or what, however they want to describe them. Oh, so good. And then he says, I must set down what he told me. He's going to write down what the coachman has told him. And we, we begin with the story of the coachman, which starts off fairly normal. It's not like uh, one of those Lovecraft stories where someone's going off looking for something weird, like they're going to an archaeological dig to find signs of an ancient civilization or anything like that. They're just getting a coach. Um, it's a bath. But things get weird. There's just one paragraph of description of them traveling normally. And then, as he tells it, there was a creaking noise and a flicker of shadow and the world changed. Or, he believes, they stepped from this world into another. And I, I like that even the coachman realizes this. I mean, it's not ambiguous to them. Weird stuff is happening. And there's a great square hole in the landscape. <laughs> now... I'm going to ask both of you this. If you had not read the introduction to this story and you got that far, at what point do you think you would have twigged that these holes into other realities were Christmas cards? Not here. Later. It would have taken me a while, I think. Maybe when they got to the scenes of, like, the three wise men kind of thing, perhaps, or maybe enough of the way through some of the messages. Because after a while you're like, oh, no, this is what you get in Christmas cards. But, yeah. Mm. I don't know, maybe I'm giving myself too much credit. Maybe I wouldn't have got it. I'd be like, what's going on? What? <laughs> I don't know. What do you think, Penny? I cannot tell, for I have read the introduction. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> fair. I'm asking you a terrible hypothetical. There is that quote, the early Father Christmas quote, makes it fairly obvious because, of course, Father Christmas wasn't invented until considerably later. Yes. Yes, that's true. So there's this, there's these weird signs of, of Christmas yet to come, if I may mm-hmm. borrow that phrase uh, from another author. But, again, it's such great use of the language of the time. I certainly feel you can tell Pratchett's read a lot of these stories, so he knows what he's doing, because uh, he uses things like, he avers now, uh, instead of saying, he tells me now. It's, it's Yeah, there's some great, oh, great Victorian language in here. Well, if you read his Dickens, he would have got all that stuff down pat, you know. Um, the style of Dickens, though, is to keep piling more and more um, stuff on top in a great big mound of words, um, but, you know, which he does, for, thankfully does not know do, but that is because he is in a short story and it would not work, but, you know. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> he, uh, although he does do that in Dodger. Yes. Well, it's Very the, much so. It's the sparing touches that add the feeling of truth to the tale. Yeah, because there's like a, there's a sort of air, do I believe this, I think? Like, because it is still through the lens of the doctor, repeating the lens of the not the coachman, so there is a bit of like, oh, do I do I believe it? I think I do like the capitalization of Robin and Turkey. I thought that was a good touch. Yes, and there's lots of little touches in here that I think it's interesting reading it now, where we don't send Christmas cards as often, and we certainly don't buy the same kinds of Christmas cards that you would have bought in 1987. I had to think back a little bit 
when seeing some of this stuff, one of the first things that he's describing here is there's this sort of weird sort of silver glittering stuff at the edges of the landscape. And I'm like, oh, is that like one of those cards that's kind of gilded in silver around the edges with a nice little scalloped edge? And of course, it's not explicitly explained because the whole point is it's meant to be inexplicable to the characters experiencing it. So it's very open to interpretation, but I do kind of like that. But it is also typical of the writing that it's emulating in that the protagonist is the coachman uh, who is described gathering with several of the male passengers specifically to sort the problem out. We wouldn't want to shock the ladies, you know, they 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 hysterical that their wombs might suddenly wander up their brains and then where would we be? <laughs> <laughs> Stuck in another universe forever. Yeah. Bless me, they just faint. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh and the dear. Oxford Scholar was quite a favourite of mine and thought he met quite a sad but appropriate end. I was, kind of <laughs> take, I was shocked. My womb did move up to my brain and when that, yeah. But, um. <laughs> yeah it, was, it was very Pickwickian and if you were lost in a weird endless universe of bizarre winters, I too would want to drown myself in a in a big cup of sweetened alcoholic beverage. <laughs> so, <you know. laughs> I mean, if he had to choose, I don't, I don't think he wouldn't have not chosen that ending for himself. He climbed up that giant glass. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah. He didn't have to go in. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, you know, they start in what seems to be a fairly innocuous kind of landscape. You know, there's this sort of weird glitteriness. There's snow, but but the snow also has some glitter on it. And it's it's one of those, and this is actually, I realise now exactly what this card is. It's one of those ones where they've, like, put glitter paint on it to make bits of it shiny and sparkly, yeah, you know. Yeah. So, they're like, why are these silvery bits on the landscape? This makes no sense. So, I think they start out in the Christmas card version of their own scene. They're a mm. coach going across yeah. the snow. Mm. But there's this weird rectangular exit from there into another plane, which they do go into. In there, they see an enormous robin, <laughs> which this reminded me of uh, Mysterious Island, you know, the sequel to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, where there's the, like all these giant animals. And in the film version, there was like there was a giant crab and a giant turkey and just just normal creatures, but they were way too big. And so it was weird. <laughs> it's yeah, it's great. Is it because like if there's a mantelpiece of Christmas cards, they're all in scale to each other. So like if the coach is like this big, the robin is the same size and then they're just <laughs> compared to each other. Yes. Correct. It's lucky they never got to the dancing frogs, fortunately. That would have been very normal. <laughs> That would have been the most sinister, chilling scene I think ever written down. Oh, they, they, at least they would have had some nice music. <laughs> How do you know it was nice? Well, that's true. I mean, <laughs> what, what kind of music would frogs make if they had instruments? Drums. Just plappy drum noises. Very sinister and squelchy. And coming from a Lovecraftian background, of course, the shadow over Innsmouth, uh, the deep ones. Oh, yes. Um, but given that these are not actually in the story, perhaps we should step away and go back to the um, the next card. <laughs> oh, yes. We'll write our frog story another That's time. That's right, but yes. I did have a question, though. So um, because the first scene they come to, as you're saying, is like their own, like the Christmas card mm -hmm. coach scene, is what's happening Christmas cards finding moments through history that match what they are and taking them and that's becoming the Christmas cards and that's why the windows form? Like, is that the, yeah. the science underlying it? I mean, it doesn't have to have an explanation. Those stories don't need to. But I, I found myself wondering because like, there's a bit very soon after where there's this London scene and it's familiar, and but there's people who are from there. So it's kind of like, are the Christmas cards taking moments from history and just freezing them as Christmas moments? 
I mean, that doesn't apply to the kittens. They they could be kittened with. So, so yeah, well, I was no, kind of I... wondering if that was. Yeah, I I think that's what's happening, and I mean, there's sort of the hint of that later on when they do meet the three wise men, and they kind of talk about how. They were just wandering to the marketplace and then they found themselves in this weird place with all these other people and these strange voids and gaps into other places. Yeah, so I think there's a bit of that. But again, you know, the in the story, you don't know. We don't need to know. But. Well, it, but it is hinted that the Doctor has kind of figured this out, even though there's no way he could possibly know because he's never seen any of these Christmas cards. But, you know, he thinks the Christmas carol singers, the carolers, are in danger because, you know, yes, you can get Christmas cards with pictures of carolers on them. So maybe they're going to get sucked into a card next. Who knows? It's very silly, but very fun. So they find the uh, the giant robin several times larger than a turkey, as it is described. And this is where we meet your fave, Liz, the uh, scholar from Oxford, who, <laughs> in the polite language of the time, has refreshed himself mightily during the journey, i.e. he is already a bit sloshed. He's getting into the Christmas spirits. Well, wouldn't you? I mean, a stagecoach was not the most comfortable species of travel. It's freezing cold and snowing. I, too, would be partaking of the hip flask if I could. <laughs> Absolutely. Seems like a wise move. Yes, indeed. That's why he's my favourite. <laughs> uh, and he's the one who says, look, I think we should climb through here and see if that's how we can get to Bath, which is, look, optimistic, um, but better than doing nothing, I suppose. The foolish optimism of a, of a scientific man. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that it seems like maybe he was onto something and that's when they find the next hole, which is into what seems to be a London city street. And again, it's a very traditional English Christmas mm-hmm. card. One of the men in the coach is like, I live near there. That's I know that street. Uh, it's clearly been painted from life. And he goes in there to try and find it. But... It's kind of, and again, I imagine this is like one of those movie sets, like particularly from films in the in the 60s, where they're starting to really play with the conventions of films, or even like some of the silent films that did the same thing, where there's there's clearly a flat, like mm-hmm. a painted flat at the back of the set that's meant to represent more stuff, and you go up to it and you touch it, and you're like, oh, I can't go any further. Uh, I think that might have happened in an episode of The Prisoner as well. I'm not sure. I, 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 I know I've seen this in things, and I could just see it happening. Terrible. Nothing but white cardboard, he says, <laughs> with his face Just, pale. But the, the, for it seemed to all in these last few moments of hope that almighty providence had foreseen their fate upon the bitter road and had opened a gateway into the warm heart of the greatest city into the world, dot, dot, dot. And it's just, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there's there's people caught in there, including some carol singers. Um I think what's interesting is they wander out of a real world, which is their world, but when they wander into the next card... They are in a fake. They are in the card. They are in the set. So mm, that, and yeah. in fact, the coachman eventually realizes this because he is then able to run back to the real world, even though, of course, sadly, he is mad, mad, um, for he has seen things that he must not and cannot recall. Um, to quote Lovecraft. And for how long? Like it could have been years. <laughs> yes, that's like, true. That's true. And that that also goes to Dickens again in A Christmas Carol, which is the Scrooge meets the ghost of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future. So that time travel is, again, very Dickensian and very, very early Christmas. <laughs> yeah. This was something that blew my mind recently when I was I was thinking about A Christmas Carol, and I read about this. Someone had written a great article about it. But Dickens didn't just invent Christmas. He also pretty much invented time travel fiction. I mean, because I think A Christmas Carol predates the time machine, doesn't it? He, he's travelling through spiritual means, yes. but <laughs> um, That's true. 
there was quite he also wrote another story the signalman the ghost in the signal is actually as it turns out something that's coming from the future into the past um uh-huh. and this is why the whole ghost stories of christmas thing came around he edited a magazine called all the year round and with the success of the christmas carol he then would have a ghost story special every christmas and invite lots of very hugely talented writers to write so this whole idea of having ghosts at christmas became in and became very english and very traditional and so whenever and there's many a story later where where, you know when englishmen gather around a hearth at christmas they are going to tell each other ghost stories you know so again this is all uh, pratchett harking back paying that homage to his illustrious mentor yeah i hadn't thought about this beforehand because i hadn't read that many spooky christmas stories but, in fact, the first time this story was reprinted after it was originally in Time Out magazine in London, it was printed in a collection called Shivers for Christmas in 1995. I rest uh, my case. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, there you go. Yeah. Clearly a popular genre. There's enough short stories to fill a whole book. Probably so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's great. I'm going to read more of these. Absolutely. But uh, let's let's get to the end of this one. Um <laughs> We, I mean, because there's not that much of it. Like, it's pretty short, I think. It's fair to say. Uh, I think in my, I have an electronic copy and it's only about five or six pages long. Uh, it's not much longer than that in the print copy, I don't think. I feel like he packs a lot in. Like, it's, like, it's a very fun story as well, but he manages to, like, cover a lot of ground in terms of the people he's playing homage to, as well as putting in a lot of jokes and covering a lot of, like, Christmas card tropes. So, <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know. Well, I like that he accelerates it too, and this is this is something you do see in in Lovecraft stories and, and other ones of the era, where at some point the retelling of the story just kind of breaks down, and instead of it you getting all of the details, you just sort of get you know little snippets because this is the point in the like endeavor where the person experiences it, their brain kind of breaks and they can't quite comprehend what's going on anymore, and he uses the phrase, "This is the point the coachman's tale becomes quite incoherent." And then they go into some other worlds to try and find their way back to the real world. And they, this is where they find out that the strange windows have, and I love, this is such a good word that you don't get much these days, an obverse side, which just means reverse, I think, like opposite. Um, but it is such a good word. And you can enter the world of the next card by going in the front but if you go around the back, it's just this big white blank <laughs> square. <laughs> and I'm like, this is quite horrifying if you think about it in the abstract. But because we know it's Christmas cards, it's also kind of ridiculous. So, it's, I think he's really, I, I think he's doing a great job of balancing those two things. The, the thing I, I really enjoyed about this is it is funny. It's a funny story, but it is horrifying. Like, because... I recently read a collection by Shirley Jackson, which is obviously a lot later, but there is a really good story about getting trapped in a painting in a house. Mm. And you think about it on the surface level of, oh, yeah, Christmas cards, fun, jolly, a little bit creepy. But, like, if you were faced with that, it would be just as horrifying as any other horror scenario. It's just the the fact that there's funny slogans and stuff so, like, takes the edge off it. Mm. But, yeah, it's at its core, it's just as scary as anything, like, being full horror. Yeah. Also, the line you said comes before my favourite line in the whole story, which is, if I can understand his ravings, they seem to be vast white squares in the sky on which some agency had written lengthy slogans of incredible yet menacing banality whose discovery had so unhinged the London gentleman. <laughs> that, that's a fair summary of Christmas card messages. <laughs> Are they? Here's what I want to know. Are they just 
because it's clearly not just the printed things that are written. It's also the things that people have written in the cards, like mm-hmm. as personalized messages. Remember Majorca? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, At least there's no Christmas newsletters, though, so maybe that wasn't quite a thing in the late 80s. I don't know. Like, it seemed like they had a big boom in the 90s where you get a double-page rundown of everything that Charles, Fred, and George, and little Timmy had been up to that year. A US tradition. A US tradition, not ah. a UK tradition. Yeah. Mm. And it, it seems to me that that happening in the 90s might be when people finally had like kind of halfway decent home printers so they could type up such a letter on their computer and run off like 16 copies and send one to everyone and they didn't have to like write out by hand like all these different copies of things. That a might strong be... example of can doesn't mean should. <laughs> yeah, fair. But look, they get they get themselves into more trouble. They, they go through uh, several other windows. The women in the party get a bit hysterical. Oh, we all saw that coming. Um... <laughs> And they end up, if he first of all, he breaks down and starts just screaming out the things that he read that he doesn't understand. And he's clearly gone in what Victorian era people would describe as, you know, going insane. Uh, <laughs> he's, and it's very distressing. I mean, he's described as banging his head on the wall uh, in time to what I may, in the loosest sense, call the rhythm of the phrase. And it's just the phrase being, I have come a long, long way to bring you joy this Christmas day. And you just imagine someone just, you know, in oh, awful. It is creepy. It's like when you have a creepy doll, like that it's it's such a banal object and it's meant to be cute and lovely. But then when it behaves in a way that's unexpected, it suddenly becomes incredibly sinister. And again, it, and like those stories of some of the really creepy things kids say without realizing how creepy they are, it it really it works. Mm. But yeah, they go well. They in the plane. They don't know how long they're there. They meet some other people who are stuck there. And I like how it says there were other people on the same dreadful journey and monsters also, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, they meet they meet what are clearly meant to be the three wise men, yeah. whose names are they're not named in the story, but they're. Usually uh, referred to as uh, Melchior, Balthazar, and uh, what's the other one's name? I should know this. I played one in a musical once. Um, <laughs> I can't remember the other one. But anyway, they, they've got names. They got stuck in a similar situation. What, uh, they can speak to them because the Oxford scholar can speak Latin and so can one of uh, the three wise men. <laughs> uh, they also meet some shepherds and they manage to get some food <laughs> the big mince pie. Oh, yeah. Gaspar. Gaspar or Caspar. Sorry. Oh, Caspar. Yes, of it course. It was bugging me. <laughs> no, thank you for supplying that. Thankfully, that is not the one I played or I would be very disappointed with myself. I've had Melchior for those wandering at home. But yes, the, um, they had lots of money uh, because they're the three wise men, the three wise kings. Uh, and they bought some sheep off the shepherds. And then the coachman, who's quite handy with a knife, <laughs> slaughters them. I mean, it's this. I mean, this is horrifying for a vegetarian to read, um, but it's uh, it's great. And then this is where he just sort of babbles about weird things, including four giant kittens, a bellowing red giant, clearly Father Christmas, giant glasses in which the Oxford scholar unfortunately drowns uh, drinking the sweet sherry. Oh, the sherry may also be a little bit of a nod to Poe, who I think it was the cask of Amatillo. So it might be huh. just a little bit of... Just a little touch. Who knows? Oh, I may be yes. reading too much into 
getting dead drunk at Christmas, but there you are. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think you might be onto no, something think, there. Yeah. Pratchett always packed. I mean, this is the, one of the great things about reading Pratchett is he is a bigger nerd than the biggest nerd amongst us. And all of his books are packed full of things. So many references and little homages and uh, sides. Easter eggs. Yeah, Easter. Yeah, exactly. Easter eggs, Liz. Yeah, I'm sure. You're Christmas presents. Ba- <laughs> that is a more appropriate way to describe them for this story, yes. Because he had a real gift for that. <laughs> <laughs> I should. I didn't give you a pun warning before I invited you on the podcast, Penny. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, you should, um, I, there's going to be more. He who would pun would murder a man. <laughs> I've never heard that, but now... Oh, now I want that on a T-shirt. Yeah, I need that on a <laughs> on a knife. I can... <laughs> on a knife. I'll get you engraved on a knife. <laughs> on a Swiss Army knife. <laughs> what else does he see? Uh, oh, well, there's the... Snoopy. Sorry, there's... and I wouldn't have gotten that if he hadn't mentioned it in the introduction. I'd have been like, what is this This dog on a, on a little dog house? I mean, it is yeah. so 80s, Snoopy. I mean, not that he was invented in the 80s, but it was huge in the 80s, appearing on all these... Christmas cards and calendars and, you know, plush toys and everything. I'd, I'd never read a Snoopy comic in my life, but I'd seen all of those things and I'd seen the occasional Charlie Brown show. I mean, the big one in America is the Charlie Brown Christmas special, which they still show every year, I'm sure, in America, like they do with most of the classic Christmas stuff on TV there. So, yeah, that's an enormous black and white caricature of a dog watching them balefully from the top of its kennel. Uh, and... Also, things which even as a man of science, I would blush to record. What things do we think they are? Oh. Uh, I would suggest probably to do with uh, semi-naked ladies. I'm not too sure. Oh. <laughs> oh, they probably are quite like rude Christmas cards. Yeah. Yeah. I, see, like, Ben, I cannot stop just picturing the frogs. Like, I wrote this question <laughs> down when I was reading the short story. And I was like, this would be a great question to ask everyone. But now my brain is just filled with marching frogs. So <laughs> I've got nothing. Oh, no. Well, I think they probably did see the frogs. I mean, they would have... You'd see all kinds of weird stuff. Like, you'd see giant candy canes. You'd probably see uh, a giant animate gingerbread man. They sometimes show up on Christmas cards. Lots of anthropomorphism as well. So, like, that would probably be... There's your monsters. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, probably there was a giant orange cat with black stripes. Because I'm (laughs) sure there were lots of Garfield's uh, Christmas cards in the 80s. I wonder, too, like, maybe maybe that line is in there so that whatever weird Christmas card traditions came after 1987 could also be imagined <laughs> to be included. Yeah. But this is where the coachman just goes, I can't handle this anymore. I'm leaving. I'm getting out of here. And he manages to make his way back through the various cards until he gets back to the weird, shiny, silvery version of the snowy plane. And he sees the, the hole in reality close up. Mm-hmm. and he staggers around until he gets back home. And it's not clear if they'd stayed there if that would have happened. I mean, often in these sort of stories, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, Penny, but often there's this feeling that the weird things that happen, they're not even aware of human beings, and they just happen, and there's no rhyme or reason for them from our perspective, and we will never understand why they happen. And I think there's a certain sense of that in this story. Your guess is as good as mine. Uh, I think when you step out of the earth you probably step through those cards you probably step out of time so you could be Mm. there for as long as you want and this again could be perhaps a reference to the christmas carol when he steps back in i wonder if it was at that point it was after christmas it might be that this only happens Mm. around that christmas period and that you know once the bell strikes midnight 
on, at, on Christmas or New Year, it might go away. I believe the story was not dated. I'm sorry, I don't have it with me, and I'm not quite sure. No, that's all right. I think uh, it does say that the news story is from the 24th of December, but it doesn't say when the doctor is writing this. So it could it could have been then. I mean, the the, 12th... the news story mentions finding the coachman, though, doesn't it? Yes, it does. So but he's been it... found. They may have Just disappeared before. on the 24th, and then he may have come back on the uh, 26th. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. I think also the thing about it closing up is it allows them to lean into the, did this really happen or is it madness? Because you can't go back and find out for yourself. Like, it's gone. Like, his, his story is, oh, I stepped through a thing, but now it's gone and you can't find it. So that sort of... But but is there not upon the snow the footprints of some giant fell beast? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, and the fallout of the other, yeah. That's right. A veritable right. Be- kitten of the Baskervilles. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm just imagining that goodies episode, Kitten Kong, where they, they use the growth formula and they use too much of it and the, this kitten grows to enormous proportions and start knocking over buildings. And in Swindon, a man has been savagely pecked to death in his own gardens, the robin. Yes. Oh, <laughs> That, yeah. And that is, that is, of course, homage, I think, to the birds. Uh, def- very famous Daphne du Maurier horror story, uh, as immortalised by Alfred Hitchcock. So there you go. I never knew that was based on a on a story. That's amazing. Is, Same. Is the is the story in in this style, or was it written later? Oh no, Daphne du Maurier is in the twenties and thirties. She right. says, "Fortunately, no, nobody's around to correct me when I say that." But yeah, no. So she's definitely writing out of that tradition, though, and writing it. It's an excellent short story. As people barricade themselves into the houses and gannets drop from above. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> it sounds extremely messed up. Yeah. I recently watched kind of appropriate because it's sort of based on material from the same era. The story is drawing from, but there's a a new show vaguely based on Sherlock Holmes called The Irregulars on Netflix, which I will be the first to admit I didn't particularly like, but there's some weird supernatural stuff that happens in the first episode with uh, a man who can control crows, and there's a very similar scene where they barricade themselves in, like, an old um, warehouse, and there's just crows, like, slamming into the um, boards of the wall and, like, almost breaking through, and there's just all these little beaks (laughs) Uh, and then there's another one where they're in a glass house and they're bashing into the windows and starting to smash through. It is creepy. A, a little side point is I actually quite enjoyed the regulars. It wasn't sold at first, but I think if you accept that it is completely anachronistic and a little bit trash, it actually has a, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> there's a lot of giant gaping plot holes that don't make sense and it veers tonally from, um, from like, oh yeah, this is like a, romantic um young adult thing and then suddenly like someone's getting their eyes pecked out by a bird and you're like wait what but yeah <laughs> <Or> <laughs> be a warning to our younger listeners <laughs> yes yeah never fall in love because <laughs> and obviously in the tradition of horror and ghost stories if you do fall in love do not make out in a car in a lonely deserted u.s back lot because <laughs> no <laughs> Something bad will happen. <laughs> yeah. Oof. And that that's a big difference between this kind of horror and that horror that was popular in 1987, too, is that, that it had a very almost kind of fairy tale like punishment for breaking with very old fashioned morality kind of thing going on, which is something it has in common with comedy, actually. It happens in a lot of sitcoms, like they're very old fashioned when people get their comeuppance. But back in this sort of era of horror writing, it always seems to me that the main thing you'd be punished for is being too curious about weird things. Is that a fair thing to say? 
What happened was the history of ghost stories actually comes, you know, it's obviously been with us through all of history. We have the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear and the oldest and strongest fear is fear of the unknown. And they changed from being spirits that would come back with very definite purpose, you know, because they wish to be absolved from their sins by the church and so on. And then as we slowly moved through the thing, they became in the Victorian and Edwardian era, they became just malevolent forces, although still human. And then when you get into the Lovecraftian, Lovecraft is very much credited with this idea that we're just these infinitesimal specks in the universe and what we do does not matter. And there are forces outside that can just take the earth, wipe off life from it and drag it away as a cosmic billiard ball. So there's this evolution of horror and the purpose of ghosts to the point where the world universe is meaningless and thus ghosts can be meaningless. But what's happened, I think, along with that is they've actually become a lot more bloodthirsty. <laughs> we've lost <laughs> we've lost our faith in the power of fear to be frightening in and of itself and decided it's got to be clawing through your brain. Zombies, you know. Um, more visceral. That's right, yes. Thank mm. you. That's the word. <laughs> yeah. Whereas in these kinds of horror, you know, this sort of cosmic horror of Lovecraft mm. and, and the other sort of horror of that era, it's very much about evoking this feeling of, yeah, things that you don't understand, and that's enough for mm. it to be creepy and, and horrifying. Yeah. At the risk of being that dork that talks about the thing that they themselves have written, um, I wrote a ghost story like last year, the year before, I don't know, 2019 and 2020 and 2021 have all sort of merged into a super year for me, so I don't <laughs> yes. know when anything happened. But I wrote this ghost story thinking that I was going to do a creepy one, and it ended up just being about like someone who dies in their 30s and thinks they're going to the afterlife and ends up haunting a vague acquaintance that they didn't really know for the rest of that person's life. And it was just kind of like, what would you do in that scenario if you thought you died and then suddenly like there's just someone you kind of know from school and you're privy to every intimate detail of their life, and you're just stuck there until they die. So, yeah. The banality of being existing forever. Um, yeah. I think <laughs> a lot of the, horrifying. A lot of the power of these Edwardian Victorian ghost stories actually come from what you have to repress. There was a lot of stuff, and a lot of the anxieties that you have to live with in a world which is much less safe. A lot of very uh, brilliant stories written by women who basically were writing because that was really the only genteel occupation you could do as a woman, uh, in a world where if you became poor, there was nothing, there was no safety net, you know, for you and your children. And another, a lot of other writers that I think are brilliant were actually most likely gay. And, you know, that again, in that society, you couldn't really deal with it in many other ways, but you could actually write of ghost stories about what you felt in these mm. circumstances um, and turn it into a thing of horror. And it's a shame in a way, because you think you, if, if you are confronting a horrific ghost and you think, hey, it's the shadow of my sexuality, that's actually quite sad, but it makes a cracking ghost story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, wow. I hadn't really thought of things like, that, like as a way of getting out repressed it helps. thoughts. Yeah. yeah. Like living a life on the page instead yeah. of in your head. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, I think that's what we writers do a lot. It helps us deal with anxiety and stress. and um, mm. But importantly, you've got to still write a cracking story. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. Yes, yes. Um, I see that's true in comedy as well. Like The comedy that most hits with most people is often not about the most ridiculous situations in terms of inventing crazy things that would never happen. It's about things that are believable extrusions of our real anxieties and fears. Mm. And that's why, you know, still farce is such a popular, I mean, it doesn't often get called that, but you look at a lot of even now like popular sitcoms and you see that a large part of it is this sort of farcical interaction between characters who can't quite bring themselves to say what they really mean. 
they hide their feelings, they keep secrets from each other because they are ashamed or they're worried or they're anxious. And I think we all identify with that. And it's a different expression of the same thing that you see in horror. It's, it's, mm. it's catharsis. It's emotional involvement that the tension has to be just right. And then when it snaps, you get laughter or you get tragedy, <laughs> you know, yeah. or, or uh, the resolution a of, a, of a satisfying plot. Nothing mm. better than reading something and just getting to the end and going, every bit of that was perfect. Um, yeah. Mm. Just going, oh, yes, of course. How did I not see this? You know, that's that's that feeling you want. And I mean, of course, and yeah, as you said, Liz, sometimes you get a bit of both, as in this story where we kind of get to the end and we've had a few laughs along the way, but also we're like, oh, you've had a glimpse into this mystery world of Christmas horror and you're worried that it could become real again. I love the, the ending one of the final paragraphs just has that real Lovecrafty vibe of, oh, it's, I'm looking at the real world in hope and maybe it's all just in this man's head. Then again, maybe not. <laughs> like It's that sort of vibe. Yeah. And then there's great last lines where he refers to the creaking of the, you know, cardboard portals to other worlds. And then he says, and he just he co-ops the Dickens line. He's like, God help us, everyone. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> I just thought was so perfect. Yeah. What a great ending. <laughs> it's kind of a weird thing, isn't it? Like this... Amongst Pratchett's writing, like a lot of what he writes, it's not unusual for him to be doing a bit of pastiche or homage or parody. But this, I think, is an interesting one because while it's not a parody of the form, it's very much, it, it adheres to the, the form very closely. It's more a parody of stupid 1987 Christmas cards. <laughs> but the horror part of it, I think he takes quite seriously. No, I would agree with that. It, the The punches are thrown at slogans more than anything else so now we've been through the whole story that's it dear listener it's it's no longer than that it'll take you no time to read i hope you have read it before you listen to this discussion yeah it's this weird interesting sort of combo of comedy and horror which i i think when done well really works you know i i'm not a big horror fan in terms of horror films but i love a good horror comedy you know stuff like Shaun of the dead or uh, Grabbers, which is a great Irish film where these aliens come to Earth and they're trying to eat everyone, but they're allergic to alcohol. So the only way the protagonist can stay safe from the aliens is to make sure they stay drunk while they're fighting. <laughs> the them Oxford off. Scholar. Yeah, the Oxford <laughs> Scholar would do well. There's also Tremors, of course. You know, you chose oh, yes. to break into the wrong rec room, you know. Um. <laughs> yes, that's great. It pans <laughs> over and there's all these guns on the wall. Yeah, that is a great one, too. Yeah, so those emotions do go well together. Mm -hmm. Of all of the stories, Certainly all the ones I've read so far, it's the most this is someone else's style and I'm mm. playing in it of all of his shorter fiction, I think. Mm. It's a very playful piece where he was having a lot of fun and he so he wrote it well and he had fun with it, but he's not trying to be um, too serious. Uh, so, he's, he, he, you know, in very much way it's a bit like that good omens that you have the switch between the comedy and the, the darker aspects and uh, he handles it very well. What is missing is really the intensity which you get in a very good Lovecraftian story or a very good Victorian mm. or Edwardian ghost story. But that's not what he's aiming for. He's just um, aiming mm. to have fun. <laughs> yeah, because he punctures that tension with the jokes, really. Mm. Yes. This is, it's something Hannah Gadsby talks about in her comedy. It's all about building tension and then releasing it with your punchline. Yeah. In a horror story, that tension doesn't get released, which is why you get more and more... Ooh, as you're reading it, it's like, oh, what's going on? Is everyone going to be okay? Whereas in this, that tension does get, yeah, punctured a little bit by the 
the gags and the little bits of writing from the various Christmas cards. Yeah. Hannah Gadby also says, and you have to trust me. You, and it's about building that trust between the creator and the reader. And uh, I think we can trust Terry Pratchett to handle that and to do what he wants to do with it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Not for a moment did I forget while reading the story that this is Terry Pratchett having fun writing a thing for a magazine. So I never felt like he was try- reaching for something and failing to get there. I feel like he was doing exactly what he was trying to do. Mm. And it kind of had, and I don't know how he wrote, like what his process was, but like the way I imagined it, it kind of had the feeling of you've got this commission to write for a magazine and you're trying to think of ideas and you just sort of look over and you go, you see your Christmas cards, you go, <laughs> yes. That's it. And then you sort of like crack your knuckles and then you, off you go for three hours and you just have the biggest, best time writing, <laughs> bringing in all these things you love mm-hmm. and then going back through it and just adding in some details. That's kind of like, like a joy of settling on an idea and getting to do something fun that you just have a great time mm-hmm. for every sentence. That's how it felt to me. Yeah. And we should remember, this is reasonably early in his career as well. So this is just after Mort has been published in November 1987, but it's still fairly early in his career. But he's famous now, like, because he's had four of these books that have done quite well and people know what they are. And even then, you know, I think he's really relishing the fun of this opportunity. Mm. What a great time to be Terry Pratchett in 1987. And to step out of the thing that you're well known for as well. Like, I feel like there'd be a kind of like a joy and a release from that as well to be writing something different, but that you still love doing. Definitely. Are there any favorite bits that anybody wants to read out that we haven't read out? Because like there are, I think one of the great joys for this for me was reading sentences that I'm like, I don't think I would ever read that sentence in any other context, but this story. And there's quite a few good ones in there. I did enjoy the dreadful beagle as well. Cause it, and yes. the, the juxtaposition of sentences against each other, it's like, uh, there's one that I'll read, it's where the monsters have been released into the world, but we don't quite get told what they are except for one. And it goes, a cat larger than an elephant. It had a blue bow about its neck. What monsters have been let into the world? And I just love the, the imagery of like the bow being like the most terrifying thing about it. Like that's... <laughs> That's the monstrous part. Oh, yeah. No, that's good. <laughs> the vast pie of mincemeat. The vast pie of mincemeat, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the things that he's screaming that he can't quite get over and that the way he mixes it through, like, yeah, you're, the bit that you just mentioned when he's saying, uh, happy Christmas, it's your first one, wishing you joy and a lifetime of fun. Sweet Jesus, the dreadful beagle. And it's just, <laughs> what, this man has the seen contrast. too much. He's seen too much. <laughs> Oh, it's Snoopy, isn't it? Because Snoopy's a beagle. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Oh, I was just like, what's this other beagle? I'm I'm willing to accept this a random beagle. Thing. It's even better. <laughs> but Snoopy is the dreadful beagle. It wouldn't be Snoopy if you were writing this now, would it? I mean, you said before, like, what other things would you put on the Christmas cards now? But I, I'm not sure. I think because we don't really send them anymore. Like, so it'd be like whatever the latest meme is. Yeah. <laughs> The younger listeners will be going, what is this thing you are talking about? They'll need footnotes on the story in future. Yeah. Oh, well, we can we can add those, that's, that's for sure. I can uh, see if I can find a picture of me as a child next to our Christmas card clothes horse where we'd um, put up all the Christmas cards draped across all of the rungs of it. And we, we do try to send out Hogswatch cards to mm. our subscribers. I uh, would we'll be doing that this year. Uh, last year didn't quite happen for 
well, you know, reasons. Mm. And it, it is fun. I mean, I really like sending postcards. So I think I, I could get back into the Christmas card thing. And I used to do them. But I certainly feel this pressure to write more than just the kind of thing that's in this story. Like, I feel like you've got to say something. Not to the extent of the 16-page diatribe <laughs> that you were describing earlier, Liz. I like the idea of them. But yes, I don't send them much. Because now you don't need to. Now you can get on a phone and video call someone. And as much as we're all sick of that, it's still a lot more immediate and you feel a lot more present doing that than you do sending a card. But there is something, there's still something very intimate and special, I think, about receiving a handwritten note from someone in the mail. And I still appreciate it for sure. I think I came out too far the other side. I used to send like, I used to do Christmas cards all the time. I'd send them to like everyone. And then I just sort of, I reached a point where I think, Maybe it was after 21st season where it was just like a gift on party upon everything where you just, you run out of brain capacity. And I think I ended up at a point where like I was wrapping a gift and I like didn't know how to wrap it. And I was like, I know what I'll do. And I went to Wikipedia and I printed out the page for gift wrapping and I wrapped it in that. And so I suspect if I went to do Christmas cards now, I'd probably end up doing the same thing. Like print out the Wikipedia page for Christmas cards, slap that on the front. And then write, remember Mallorca, and there we go. <laughs> you, away you go. Which I very personal. <laughs> yes. Yes. Personal enough to be incomprehensible to anyone else. Mm. I was actually just trying to find if I could see an amusing quote from, from the Christmas Carol. But, of course, the thing with writing this period is it was more lengthy. We had more time to really read a, a good long book. Um, <laughs> so I can't find one. I guess I was... Quickly going to mention the other great uh, ghost story writer of Christmas, which is M.R. James. Mm-hmm. He used to write a ghost story every Christmas for his friends. He was a, I'm going to say Oxford Don. He may have been a Cambridge Don. I'm going to get in such trouble. Um, <laughs> and he would read it aloud. He's going to come back and haunt That's you. Right. He would read it aloud and then um, he was an antiquarian. He loved his books. And then nobody, he just thought of publishing it very late in his career and he, he published them. And so I think he was another person who very much cemented that ghost story Christmas idea. He, I guess why I'm interested in him as a comparison is because he was a very spare writer. His horrors are very, often it's just somebody reaches out and touches something that should not be there. They're, but also they're very mean. I, would, I wouldn't recommend these stories for anybody who gets worried at night about strange noises in the night because his horrors are very briefly and very succinctly described. <laughs> oh, okay. Short, so, sharp um, shocks. Short, sharp shocks, yes. Um, yeah, so I get scared very easily, but you've also extremely sold it to me that, that I have to read them. So I'm, I'm looking forward to a month of no sleep, but having enjoyed some good literature. That's right. Oh, wow. If the listener wanted to read an M.R. James, what is there a good one that you'd recommend it to begin Ooh, with? They're, they're all good. Look, the first one I ever read was called Lost Hearts, and I think it's terrific. But the one that I think really gets everybody is called Oh Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad. Um, Oh. which has got a, something that is described in one sentence that you will then think about every time you're in a room with two beds. <laughs> oh, no. You'll be looking at the other bed, you know. <laughs> oh, that sounds horrifying. Even the title has given me the creeps. I like it. So, right, um, I th- I, so I think when I was looking at this, I was thinking Dickens a bit of – and uh, but because a bit more streamlined, a bit more modern, I think, with, with, with mm. James – did Dickens, this is something I don't know about Dickens, did Dickens write many short stories? I know his works were serialised, so he was writing them sort of a bit at a time. 
I don't think Dickens could really write a short story if he tried because his <laughs> prose is so – he just loves taking the detail and piling it on. And Yes. But he has written some very good short stories. But then because he was a journalist and so he wrote a lot of reportage in his early days. Hmm. A novelist and fiction writer who was famous for his ethical humanism, started out as a journalist and went on to write fantasy stories, including popular ones about time travel and Christmas – I feel like we've heard this story before, or should that be heard it again? But yes, mainly it was the serialisation of the novels. Again, I would say The Signalman, if people are interested in reading a Dickens short story. that's uh, It's a very... For the younger listeners among us, <laughs> in the era of steam trains, you'd often only have one track, and if a train was coming along, you'd have to stop one train so the other train could come through, and this had to be done manually by a chap who was called The Signalman. And so this mm. is about a signalman on a particular area of track. And it's interesting it's a railway because Dickens was involved in a horrific railway um, accident mm. and rescued some people who were involved in it. Huh. And oh. you kind of wonder in a way if this story, because it treats with a ghost that moves through time, moves backward through time, is actually a bit of post-traumatic shock, his way of dealing with this accident. And I have not actually ever checked the dates of the story and the dates of the train accident, and I'm not going to now. Oh, well, well I will probably Just like the do beginning it. of... I, I will probably do it for our show notes, but I won't, I won't send them to you, so you don't need to read them, and you can remain unsure of whether that is the order of operations or not. That's right. That's great. Well, look, we did get a listener question, and I think we should ask it, because I think we sort of touched on it, but not quite... Hmm. So our question comes from Sally via Discord. The prose is set in the early Victorian era, but the messages on the Christmas cards have modern elements. Discuss. I would love to discuss that. I'm very into the slogans on the cards. I'm not sure if that's come across yeah. in this episode, but I kind of love them. Well, it's drawing. I think, you know, we were just talking about that Dickens story, The Signalman, and, and also, of course, A Christmas Carol, where Dickens in, involves there's elements of time travel or glimpses of the future. I think that's kind of where this is coming from, right? That this is one way to make something incomprehensible to your Victorian protagonist is to make it something not not just from another world, but from another time. Mm. Yeah, I kind of really dug that. I thought it was cool. And they would have been very clear and obvious references to readers in the 1980s. Mm. Uh, mm. Christmas 1987, everybody knew who Snoopy was. And they would have all seen these Christmas cards and they would have all been receiving heaps of them and sending heaps of them out. So... It makes sense from that score, but I think he does a good job of translating from one time to another, do you think? Yeah, I have a question, though. Mm -hmm. Do we think these are all Christmas cards of one family sitting on a mantelpiece? Because together that would tell a quite a salacious story about <laughs> things happening behind the scenes, or are they Christmas cards from all over the country? I, I believe more important, they're probably Christmas cards through time, huh. you see, perhaps. And the, perhaps the idea that each scene, as he, and he goes forward through time to the later cards as they continue in their journey. Yeah, yeah, because he doesn't encounter Snoopy until quite far in. Mm, true. Well, that's a good way to think about it. Yeah. Oh, so that if he kept going, he might have reached some cards from like the nineties or even the two thousands. So sort of e at the beginning of the decline. <laughs> Some e cards might have ended up in a weird digital. Uh, he would have ended up in one of those jib jab animated things where you put your friends' faces on the little dancing elves. <laughs> oh that, no! 
That may that have broken him. That that may have been what broke him. That is what he cannot and must not recall, and oh. has sent him mad, mad. My my mum, who does not listen to this podcast, so I feel safe talking about this. But she she loves those things, or she did. I don't know if she still gets them. And she used to send me and my brother these horrifying things, and I just I couldn't quite watch them. I was a bit I was a bit horrified. But maybe I think to answer your earlier question, Liz, I think that's the kind of thing that's missing here, right? There's no, we've got Father Christmas, but we don't have, you know, the equivalent of the elf on the shelf or uh, any of those sort of really weirdly, grossly commercial images of all the elves making toys and all stuff like that. So, and that could be quite sinister. Mm. Uh, Yeah. Which kind of, you know, it reminds me that there's some great um, Christmas horror kind of... um, like films as well. We haven't touched on those. My favourite one is a Finnish film called Rare Exports. Because Finland is, if you don't know this, listener, this is where Santa Claus really lives. He lives in Lapland, which is part of Finland. And in the film, there's this sort of drilling operation where they think they've discovered what must be, you know, the resting place of the real original Santa Claus and some weird and horrifying stuff happens. And it's kind of, it, you know, it kind of evokes a similar feeling to this story in that there's some things that happen and there's a little bit of that. We talked about modern horror being a bit more visceral. There's a little bit of that, but mostly it's about the fear of what will happen if they don't deal with this situation. And it's also got this great kid as the protagonist. It's not for the faint of heart, that film necessarily, but it's great. And then we've seen things more recently like uh, the film Krampus where, you know, the Krampus is like the opposite of Santa Claus, comes and punishes the naughty kids and they turn that into a horror film. So there's there's been some good ones. If you were in the coachman's situation and you found yourself in a land of Christmas cards, what would you personally find the most chilling kind of card to be trapped in? Ooh. I think one of those very designed minimalist cars where like it's just a few strokes and it's supposed to be a tree. I think that would be hard to deal with in a real life space, though a very jolly big eyed Santa that's very cartoonish, I think could be very scary in its own way as well. (laughs) You've got me. Yeah, there's too many scary ones. I try not to associate (laughs) horror with Christmas. That seems reasonable. Thank you for doing this episode, then. We appreciate it. Yes. Oh, well, I mean, I love the ghost stories. There's a lovely bit um, in where Scrooge uh, is ranting against Christmas. Um, mm. You know, you keep Christmas in your own way and I will let me keep it in mine. What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money, a time for finding yourself a year older but not an hour richer, a time for balancing your books and having every item in them through a round dozen months presented dead against you? If I could work my will, said Scrooge indignantly, Every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his hearts. He should. <laughs> so there oh, you go. Boiled so... with my own pudding would be my answer. <laughs> oh, so good. I do want that on a card, though, like that whole quote. <laughs> we can make that happen. Maybe we'll make that happen at Hogswatch this year, Liz. Uh, forget we said that, listener. Forget. Uh, I, I was thinking about this, though, your question, Liz, and I think... You could pay a reasonable amount of money and get some very nice cards. Or you could pay very little money and get some very cheaply printed cards with some pretty bad art on them. I don't know if you've ever seen these websites. There's a couple of artists who have taken kids' drawings and then rendered them in a very realistic style, but while keeping the essentials of the kids' drawing correct. 
and it creates some horrifying monsters out of what we understand when we look at a kid's drawing are kids and that's some adults and that's a dog and that's a tree. But then when you draw them and try and make it realistic without changing too much, it becomes like a horrifying beast with too many eyes and 16 legs. And this is a person whose legs are not attached to their body and they have a three <laughs> massive bits of hair sticking out and that's horrifying. And I think if you did the same thing with some of those cheaply produced Christmas cards <laughs> that you can get like, you know, 50 for a dollar or whatever... It would be similar to that. Like you would have a Father Christmas who oh God. <laughs> is just all wrong proportions. Or a lovingly hand-drawn Christmas card from the family. Oh, no. Brought to life. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the dreadful handprint covered in glitter. Or one of those ones where someone's printed it out and they've clumsily photoshopped their friend. It's like the jib-jab thing, but badly done. So, like, they're... Friends' faces have been pasted onto characters, but they're all out of proportion, and then they become real in the Christmas card space. <laughs> and, there's these and it's you, like you your own Christmas card with your own giant face. Oh my god! Okay, that's awful. Uh, all right, I don't want to encounter that. I'm, I'm getting so many good ideas for Christmas cards. I might do them this year. <laughs> <laughs> this is horrifying. Oh, exactly. Dear. Oh, can I just say? I've just remembered. Um, the BBC have done a couple of modern adaptions of. M.R. James short stories. Oh, so really? if you can get them out by well, one of the guys who did Doctor Who, I think. So um, if you can get them out, I'm hoping they'll keep up the tradition. They, they did them for the last couple of years. Um, so oh, that wow. would be good. And the other thing, I guess my favourite um, Christmas movie is actually a, a wonderful tale of uh, a man who decides he's going to commit suicide because his life has been a waste of time and um, is talked out of it by a person who claims to be an angel. So, I mean, it's clearly mentally ill, which, of course, is a, it's a wonderful life, which is one of the darkest. When you look at what is actually going on there, it's an extremely dark movie. You know? Yes, yeah. it is. But it oh. is so great yeah. and weirdly, weirdly life-affirming while at the same mm. time being devastating. <laughs> oh, it's a good pick. Yeah, there you go. I don't know if we can do better than that. Perhaps that's a good note to wind up on. Um, we, I mean, we should say we've 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 covered only a few of Pratchett's short stories, and this is the first one we've covered that's not part of the Discworld universe. But I think we'll do some more. I think they're fun. I'll say also, I was a bit worried going into this. It's such a short story. I was like, are we going to have enough to talk about? Of course we did. Like everything else he writes, it's full of layers and interesting Christmas presents. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remembered what you said. There there. we go. (laughs) Uh, So I think it was a rousing success. So thank you so much. Uh, Penny, you you bring such a depth of knowledge and a love for this material to your own work. Tell us a bit about what kind of work you write. Look, I, I write a number of different things, but for the purposes of this podcast, we have a company, Campaign Coins, which makes beautiful money for your fantasy games. And we have three mascots who are three fantasy figures that we decided to write some what we hope are hilarious collections of short stories about. It's dumb, avarice and hazard. Yes, it's a pun on various things. Um, uh, And so we've collected uh, some short story collections that we publish through our website, campaigncoins.com. If listeners are interested, we do have some free download short stories on that available for people. So if they could go to campaigncoins.com and get the fiction section, they can download a couple of hopefully hilarious short stories featuring our characters as they... uh, they, they're terrific at adventuring, terrible at financial management. Um, you know. <laughs> I feel like that would be 
I, I hope that it would be that way around for me, but I suspect it would be the opposite. Um, and I, maybe I need to team up with them. I don't know. I, I have read some of those stories and they are very funny. So get along and check that out and do while you're there, look at the coins. I'm a big fan of campaign coins and everything that you and the rest of the team do. I've got quite a few of them at home. They're very good. They're very chunky. So you can check those out at the same time. I'll put a link to that in the show notes and I'll, I'll put a link to your Amazon author page up, uh, on our show notes too. Penny, because you've written so many things. Yes, but, but a lot of them are in the darker end of the spectrum, people, which I'm worried that affectionados of Terry Pratchett may not want to go. They, they, they may be looking for the more life-affirming um, side, of, side of the spectrum. You know? <laughs> so, well, well, I'll be heading there because I, I love that stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, we'll put it up there. People can find them for themselves. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yes, but uh, that's, that's what... Uh, Lots of bling and hopefully lots of laughs is what we're going for. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you once again, Penny, for joining us. And thank you, listener, for joining us as well on this little diversion. As you probably know, if you've been listening to the podcast in order, we were going to be covering the book The Long War this month, but we decided to delay that by a month for various reasons, not least of which it's a bloody long book. <laughs> uh, I haven't been able to 100% confirm this. I think it is Pratchett's third or fourth longest novel. So a little bit of extra reading time was very much appreciated. But next episode, as previously advertised, we are going back west and or east uh, as we head into the long earth of various parallel dimensions to experience the long war. And we're not going alone, Liz. Yep, this time we're going to be joined by writer and editor Deanne Sheldon Collins. So um, please send us your questions using the hashtag Pratchett46. Yes, and we are hoping to do more short stories as we close in on the final novels. It's weird for us to contemplate this having been doing it for so long, but it does feel like we're getting closer to the end than we are to the start, Liz. Yeah, it's like that Bon Jovi song, isn't it? We're, we're halfway there. <laughs> yeah. I think probably. I was trying to think of a different Bon Jovi song to say as a joke, but then I, that was the only one I could think of in the moment. <laughs> I think I think it must be more than halfway. When you get to the end, simply go back to the beginning and start all over again, because that will give everybody the opportunity to read them all again, which is what we all want. But I would just like to say thanks, Ben and Elizabeth, for having me here. It's been a, it's been a hoot. May you have many podcasts to come. <laughs> oh, I think we will. Thank you. And you know, interestingly, listener. If you are wanting us to go back to the beginning, you can get a taste of that because recorded just before this episode will come out, but released afterwards as a bonus episode, we are doing a live Pratchat as part of the LostCon online Discworld convention. If you're only just finding out about it now, it's too late. It's already been and gone, but we will release the audio from that. And we are going back to revisit the very first book we covered on the podcast, Men at Arms. So watch out for that bonus episode coming up very soon in your podcast feed. And as always, we'd like to thank all of our subscribers for supporting the podcast and making it possible for us to make it and continue making it. We're going to start peppering some more stuff in amongst the books not just more short stories, but as people have told us they want us to do it, we will also start to cover some of the adaptations of Pratchett's work, including some of the television programs. There's a film coming up, which is quite exciting, and a few other things as well. So watch out for those. We'll let you know when those are starting to come through. I don't know about you, Liz. I'm excited about this. I think it's going to be good. I'm always guarded in looking forward to things. So when it's, when it's here, I'll see how it goes. Okay. All right, that seems 
That seems <laughs> stoic and reasonable. Just to tamp down your excitement. I'm like, Mom, just, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, look, that's, that's fair enough. But look, uh, thank you, listeners. And until next time, I hear the creaking. God help us, everyone. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Penelope Love. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat45. Pratt Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrors. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.